Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to read from verses 18 to 28. Uh, So Acts chapter 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair uh, cut off at Sancria because of the vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to Archaea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So a couple of resource reviews. There's a bunch of things I've used as I've thought through Acts that we don't have here. Um, Bruce and uh, Peterson's commentaries are both very helpful, as is um, a book called Paul the Missionary, uh, Methods, Strategies and Something Else is the subtitle, by Eckhard Schnabel. There's a name for pregnant women to think about for their son, Eckhard. Um, That was a really comprehensive book in looking at and reflecting on how and to what degree there's legitimacy in drawing um, uh, pragmatic principles out of the ministry of Paul, Paul the Missionary. Um, But a a small but very helpful book that I really recommend is by Chris Green, The Word of His Grace. And there are some copies of this on the bookstore. It's one of those simple overviews that really shows you the structure of Acts, uh, the the intention of Luke throughout Acts, and then models some sermon from Acts. And I think it ties together well the theological drive of Acts, as well as some of that missionary practice that that Luke is showing to us. So um, that's strongly recommended. Uh, especially if you're thinking about preaching through Acts. I know David Cook's done something similar, which is also worth a read. Um, uh, The other resource up there that Hans has mentioned, the package deal for $50, I think it was Archie Poulos who said um, that The Trellis and the Vine was the best book he's never read, and um, The Course of Your Life is the best course I've never attended. It's kind of the course version of The Trellis and the Vine. If The Trellis and the Vine is a book setting out a ministry philosophy, then The Course of Your Life by Tony Payne, the co-author of Trellis and the Vine, is a course that is spelling out a theological vision for ministry. So we've got a package deal up there that has the DVD materials and workbook and a leader's book. And it's not the the alpha introducing God um, life course for the non-Christians so much, although it might work for that. It's especially, though, for the Christians to give them not just a practical vision for ministry, but a biblical theological vision for ministry. Why we're engaged in ministry because of God's plan from creation to new creation. So it's, um, 
it's, uh, we're going to be using it with our ministry next year with some of our leaders, and I suspect it would also be the kind of thing that could be very valuable in the core group DNA building phase of a church plant or in the realigning values phase if you're in an existing church and wanting to turn on that church towards mission. The course of your life, $50 for the full pack, or you can grab bits and pieces of it. The idea is that it works both in group time, but also in one-to-one ministry time and also in a weekend away. So it it actually models ministry relationships while it um, teaches a vision for ministry. So the course of your life. What I want to be doing in these two sermons is not so much just an exposition through each verse of Acts 18, but rather in some ways an exposition of Acts 1 to 28 um, and, and reflecting on well, how do you handle the whole book of Acts well in particular as it relates to missionary method. So rather than covering every verse, a valuable exercise, what I want to be doing instead is especially focusing on issues related to missionary methodology like the tent making and preaching and so on that we looked at yesterday and reflecting on what's the legitimate way to use Acts to discover missionary methodology. How much is God actually saying through Luke in Acts? And and what's the legitimate? That's what I'm trying to do. Now, some people here might feel I'm not doing that well enough and, you know, you can can help us together, we'll get better at that. Others of you from different traditions might not quite get the point. But Paul still made tents, didn't he? And I want to go into a closed country and, and be a doctor. Isn't that enough? That's the problem with Geneva. You're all so sound. You're all so discerning and it's just so annoying. Is this just a nitpicking thing, just a sound, fussy thing? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we uh, dig hard into Acts before we uh, draw missionary methods from the examples we find there? In the first place, because it is God's word. Reason enough. We want to represent God fairly and only say what he says. And only say he says what he says. And so we need to beware with the biblical adjective. Is it biblical in the sense that does God actually say? Did God really say? But in a good time, good sense. Um, That should be reason enough. But more than that, it's, it's an important thing to do because actually being attentive to what God's word says is one of the great safeguards against traditionalism. It's fitting we're in a Presbyterian church building because the Presbyterians and others who fought for the regulative principle fought for exactly this point, that we must let the Bible speak to what we do. And if we don't let the Bible speak to what we do, traditionalism reigns. So we need to keep going back to the Bible to let the Bible inform our practice in church and in life rather than just let tradition grow up. On the other extreme, if we don't go back to the Bible, we can be shaped by experientialism and enthusiasm. And so we just read into Acts our experience and uh, can slip into even an idealism of restoring some heavenly first century church rather than hearing what the Bible actually says. And one final reason why this is important is that going back and thinking hard about where we get our missionary models from actually helps us base our missionary method on gospel theological issues. Andrew spoke about this yesterday with the theological principle, theological pragmatism. If you just dive into Acts and pull Presbyterianism out of Acts 15 or dive into Acts and pull tent making out of Acts 18 or so on, dive into Acts 
uh, 11 and pull kind of city centre churches out of the Antioch narrative, you end up with just isolated chunks of kind of the church practice equivalent of moralism. Do you know what I mean? It's just how-tos. When you actually do the underneath work, you see why those things flow out of the, the gospel itself. Does that make sense? So that you're actually going, well, why did they do that? And why does that come out of the gospel? And why does that come out of the progress of the word? And hopefully I'll be able to model some of that for us today as we look at three issues. First, strategic cities. Second, um, well, what is second? Something equally, venues, preaching venues, venues for ministry. And thirdly, leadership in the book of Acts. Strategic cities, venues for ministry, and leadership in the book of Acts. So, strategic cities, love the city. Uh, Redeemer are most uh, famous for saying, you're the God of this city. Uh, we sometimes sing, love the city, transform the city, kiss the city, cuddle the city. It's almost as if the city becomes a separate reality. Not quite heaven, not quite earth, but the city. And so I think this fascination with city and city ministry and city sociology um, it's a great case study for how much of that is in Acts and how much of it is legitimately something coming out of Acts because some would say this is an agenda, a strategic agenda, a world-changing agenda to go upstream to the cities, to influence the elite, to then plant churches radiating out from those cities and so change the world. And almost a theology of city, a polysology or something, I guess you'd call it. Others would react against that and say, there's none of that in Acts. Don't plant churches in cities. Or if you do, make sure they're bad ones or something. I don't know. Or, or God, we don't know. It's just about the preaching of the word and that's it. Acts is just about the transition from Jew to Gentile, just about the progress of the word and cities are neither here nor there. Well, what do we actually see in Acts? First, the whole structure of Acts goes from city to city. From Jerusalem, the capital city of the people of God in the Old Testament, to Rome, the capital city of the world, or at least the Western world, in uh, the first century. And both places are cities, and importantly so, it begins at God's city, at Zion, at the centre of the land, of the plan for the world. You can't read Isaiah without seeing that Zion is important, right? Theologically important as the place where God comes to then send his word out to the nations and gather the nations in and so on. So it begins at the centre of God's plans and promises and purposes in the Old Testament and then reaches Rome in Acts 28, significantly again the city, the centre of Roman administration. For Paul himself is told, you will bring the gospel to the kings, and declare Jesus is king even over Caesar, the false god. And so you, you, it, it's again to the capital of the power of this world from Zion to Babylon, if you like. You know, So it is significant. The overall structure is meaningfully theologically based around that progress from the city of God's people to the city of this world and the spread of the gospel over all the earth. So all the earth will be Zion as the word expands. And in between, cities are regularly the centre of ministry. Significant cities, capital cities, Roman cities are ministered in. Now, we don't have a full sociology of the city in all its uh, modern kind of variations, 
but we do have that, that as a focus of the ministry. Not entirely. Paul doesn't go straight to Paphos when he hits Cyprus, but goes all around the place. Paul passes over Pergi at first when he comes back from Cyprus, and only later does he actually seem to evangelise in Pergi in Acts 14, and then Luke doesn't really say much about it at the end of Acts 14. Lystra seems to be highlighted as a place of ministry because it's Hicksville. And as far as we can see, he never reaches the capital of Galatia, Ancyra. So it's not only cities, and yet noticeably the, 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 the dominant focus of Luke's narrative, at least, is ministry in cities. But we can say more than that. Antioch, in particular, is structurally significant in Acts. It appears in Acts again and again, and we see it again here in Acts 18, verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, most likely Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there. Antioch appears again and again by its repetition and by the rhetorical positive statements about the city. It's important to what God is saying through Luke. It is portrayed, we'll come to Acts 11, it's portrayed as like a second Jerusalem in the sense that Jerusalem is celebrated, isn't it? We all know that, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, this great place where the gospel is set root and people are becoming Christians and no one dares join them and yet everyone has to join them and they're sharing with each other. And uh, We see that, that, that Jerusalem is celebrated as a place where the word has come alive in these new disciples and Antioch is celebrated as now a new model church. Acts chapter 11, significantly just after the, um, the Cornelius episode. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus. Here is the model church where evangelism is now breaking that bound as Jesus willed from Jew across to Greek. And the Lord's hand was with them. God is blessing this work. Jesus is blessing this work. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News about this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And what do they do? They say, yeah, we like this. They send Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to to further bless and encourage and sponsor this work. And when he arrived, verse 23, 11, 23, and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, how many rhetorical devices are used in this little section? Now, in general, Luke is restrained in, in the way he moralizes. You know, often it's just a, a fairly bare reporting. But here, we not only have explicit editorial comment about God's blessing upon this church and God's blessing upon the ministry of Barnabas, But in the whole way the narrative is told, this is also what um, Tannehill calls um, covert persuasion, um, implicit commentary. The whole thing is portraying positively, glowingly, the ministry in Antioch to the point that we even see the generosity that was the mark of the Jerusalem church. It's not just that Jerusalem sponsored Antioch, but now Antioch is showing that same generosity back to Jerusalem, straight back at you. And so verse 29, 11-29, the disciples, according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Vibrant evangelistically. 
sponsored by the apostles in Jerusalem, generous, generous to the churches in Judea. Here is a model church. And from Acts 13 to 18, as we see that move from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul, not only do we see um, uh, Paul mirroring the ministry of Peter, but we also see Antioch now playing this central role in the narrative. It's in Antioch 13, 1-2 that we have the prophets and leaders who are um, interestingly gathering together and worshipping. Hmm. Um, and they, in that context, send out um, Barnabas and Saul on a missionary journey out from Antioch, around the areas of Galatia and Phrygia, and then back to Antioch, 14, verse 21 and 25, 14, 21 and 25. All of that, that section from 13, 1 through to 14, 25 is this loop, the first missionary journey. Verse 21 of 14. They preached the good news in that city, won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. And after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they preached the word in Pergi, they went down to Italia from Italia. They sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered to church, reported all that God had done to them and how he'd opened the door. If they were missionaries in the 20th century, there would be a slideshow as they come back to the sending church and report on the missionary work they've done. It's what David Hesselgrave in his book, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally, describes as the Pauline cycle. Um, not as a especially great book for how to handle Acts carefully, but still insightful in that, at that point, that here we have from Antioch, a ministry of church planting, and then going back through and appointing elders and encouraging the churches, um, the first missionary journey. And then it's from Antioch, again in 1536, that the second missionary journey begins, in which our, our chapter plays its part. As we then go, instead of in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, we now go across to, to Macedonia and Archaea, touch on Asia before a return to Antioch. And so 1822... 1822, uh, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time in Antioch, he then sent out from there. And what does he do? Loop again through those churches from the first missionary journey. Antioch is the home church, the sending church, the network church, the missional in the original sense of the word. Missional first meant a church that sends missionaries. And Antioch is a missional church in that sense. It sent missionaries. Now, it's developed a newer sense now where the church itself is being sent um, in, in the modern use of missional. But in the first place, Antioch, at the very least, was missional in that original sense. It sent missionaries. It sponsored them, encouraged them, prayed for them, and was a home base for them in their missionary establishment and work. It was the places... It, it, it's the church that is shown to us as a model for what we hope the church in Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica, what we hope they would become when they become established. The goal for the new churches is to be strong and established and become Antiochs. Now, is it a coincidence that after Rome and Alexandria, Antioch was the third largest city as far as we know in the Roman world with a population of roughly Hobart, <laughs> The cities were smaller back then. Uh, 
250,000, something like this, the population of Antioch. Is it, in, in that day, the third largest city in the Roman Empire? Is it a, is it a coincidence? Leave that hanging. It's not just Antioch that is uh, the, the place where we see a mother church, Jerusalem and Antioch, but actually in Acts 18 and 19, we find this structural pattern again. Luke, in his writing as God writes through Luke, shows us the pattern again. In Acts 18 to 20, in particular, we have a little mini section in Acts 18 to 20. The ministry in Corinth, chapter 18, and Ephesus, chapter 19. And they're paired together in many ways. Both regional capitals of Archaea and Asia, respectively. Both large cities, Corinth with 80,000 and Ephesus with 200,000, roughly. Both are places where the apostle stays for a long time. Over 18 months in Corinth and over two and a half years in Ephesus. You can see that in 18 verse 11 and 19 verse 8 and 19 verse 10. Both begin in the synagogue... And when there is opposition in the synagogue, lead to the establishment of an ongoing ministry in a high-profile venue, the House of Titius Justus or the Hall of Tyrannus, 18.7 and 9 verse 9. Both are celebrated as places where many converts believe, including high-profile converts. Both are celebrated as places where the word grew and and triumphed. Both have uh, challenges, controversies with secular authorities as we discussed yesterday. And both are linked together structurally with Priscilla, Aquila and Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila uh, work with Paul in his tent making and ongoing ministry in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. We saw that yesterday. And then, in 18, verse 24, 18, 24, we read about a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria who came to Ephesus He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to his home and explained the way of God to him more adequately. Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, now Priscilla, Aquila and Apollos in Ephesus. And then 19 verse 1, well, uh, we find Apollos now at Corinth. Well, it begins in verse 27 of chapter 18. Apollos wanted to go to Archaea, to Corinth. These, these missionary workers share the ministry across the two cities. Both are returned to again. Uh, take a look at chapter 19, verse um, 21. 19, verse 21. After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Archaea. That is, going back through Corinth and Philippi. So he loops back to these places. And in fact, verse 22, he sends Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed longer in Asia. And then in 20 verses 1 to 5, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking in many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. And so again he goes and hits the, um, the Corinth loop. Like Antioch, you see, we learn in Paul's letters also that uh, Corinth became a place from which a missionary offering for Jerusalem was taken. Like Antioch, you see, in many ways, we must see this unit as a place that celebrates Corinth and Ephesus, just as Antioch was celebrated. It seems right to see this as a unit. In fact, it even climaxes with Paul's survey of his ministry practice in chapter 20. And so after these extended paired missionary works, we then have an extended speech reflecting on his missionary practice. 
to the elders of Ephesus. So David Peterson writes in his commentary, this whole section flow, uh, that, sorry, this whole section thus forms a summary conclusion to Luke's total presentation of Paul's missionary campaigns. Or Tannehill writes, Ephesus is the climax of Paul's mission as a free man. And Towner writes, there are similar patterns of ministry in Corinth and Ephesus. Here we have two complementary episodes which illustrate the mature stage of development in Pauline mission, practice and theology. It is, as Rackham writes, a record of his life's work. And the fruit of his work, the fruit of that ministry, especially in Ephesus, is astonishing. It seems out of his ministry there and disciples there that Colossae was evangelised through Epaphras, Herapolis, Laodicea, most likely the other remaining five churches written to in Revelation, perhaps Miletus. No wonder that in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul can say, God has opened a great door, an effective ministry for me here. Oh, okay, so what? <laughs> you know, so he did that. What, what do we say? Well, that's nice. What does it mean? Do we need to find the Antiochs and Ephesus today? Is it saying that it would be good to or that it's not wrong to? These are celebrated consistently, significantly in Luke's structure of the book of Acts. Daggy as it might seem, I think it is right to speak of Antioch churches. Not again with perhaps the whole baggage of transforming a vision for the city of the elite in the, all this, maybe. But seeing the value of ministry, significant, long-term missionary ministry in strategic cities, yeah, we see it here in Acts. Is it strategy then? A city strategy? I think we get tangled up with the word strategy. Uh, we go, oh, well, that's a businessy word. Well, no, it's a military word. But we kind of go, well, we don't want to be worldly in that way. Well, okay, we don't need to use the word strategy. Was it a deliberate planned action? You know, if we use that simple definition of strategy, deliberate action. The question is not really do you have a strategy or not and some kind of badge of honour that you don't. No, I am reformed evangelical, I have no strategy. Uh, but it's rather how deliberate is your strategy, how long-term is it, how inflexible is it, how uh, dominant is it in your thinking, how objective is it from your emotions. We all have a strategy, it's just some of us are less honest, articulate and clear about it. Some of us are more or less flexible with it and so on. Everyone has a strategy in some sense, whether loosely or rigidly. And Paul's strategy, well, here's how Eckhard Schnabel describes Paul's ministry. The directive to proclaim the news of God's redemptive intervention in the person and the work of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah and Saviour. You can tell he's halfway through his book at this point, right? Because he's trying to fit every other chapter summary into this thing. The work of Jesus, crucified, risen Messiah and Saviour, results quite naturally in a basic method of missionary work. People need to hear it. People live in towns and cities. People live in Roman provinces. People will have to be sought out in places where they're willing to engage in conversation and the goal is churches. 
So whether you want to call that a city-centred strategy or not, who really cares, right? We could say you don't have a strategy, but as long as you bring the gospel to those who need to hear it and realise there are millions of them in our cities... (laughs) And that Jesus is now the king of the cities and king of the politicians and king of the world. He's risen Lord. And now is his age where all people everywhere are commanded to repent before the wrath comes. And that salvation is found in no other name. There is no other way in which people can be saved. Whether king or slave, all must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. All people, all nations, and lots of them are in cities. I don't care what you call it. Bring that message to the millions in our cities and reach those cities so that we can call on them to give their wealth and comfort in their cities to serve that same cause for the regions around them. Call on them to no longer live for their own comfort and glory and power, but to use their power for the gospel to ring out. Cities are places where there are many people. And cities are places from which many more can be reached. Because people matter. Because the gospel is the message of God become a person to reach the human race, to build a new human race. In Antioch, in Ephesus, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in Perth, in the regional centres. It's so exciting to hear about Richard Wilson's ministry with the Uni Church in Wagga and how in that regional centre... The word did ring out and ministers were trained and and became part of a a ministry in that area. How is that a theory for loving the transforming, the strategic, the sociology, the city? No, I don't think you find that in Acts. It may be true, but I don't think it's biblical in that sense. But establishing, self-governing, self-funding, self-propagating churches, especially where there are lots of people from where you can reach more people, yeah, Yeah, that's in Acts. That's one of the things God is teaching in Acts and celebrating in Acts. If you want to reach the world, brothers and sisters, if we want to reach the world, we must break out of our subcultural ruts, our suburban ruts, our ethnic ruts, our uh, middle-class ruts, and reach people and all the different strands of society, all the different places where they live, all the different degrees of literacy, all the different languages and cultural backgrounds. We need to plant many churches, and we need to go to the places where they are and plant churches there, and establish strong churches there. We need many more than one strong church in Melbourne, don't we? It's a huge city, bigger than the cities of the ancient world. We need many of them, many Antiochs. But is it elitist? Is this an elitist vision? If you go to Australian student ministry conferences, you will have the vision from the front being, well, we're not about reaching the elite in our universities. We're simply about reaching lots of people who happen to be at university. If you go to an American uni ministry conference, it will be, here are the culture changes, here are the new politicians, here are the new leaders to our win back America. Both vision statements are culturally conditioned and not biblical. We Australians never want to admit there is any elite anywhere and that we'd never care about it at all. That's more Australian than biblical. The Americans like to think that that's what it's all about, perhaps, and is also not biblical. We are both shaped by our culture. 
It is undeniable, Australians here, undeniable that the elite serve the gospel. Even in Acts 18, the, the venues provided by the home of Titius Justice, a house big enough to house a church and a growing ministry. Or even the elite Gallio, who's not a Christian, serves the advance of the gospel through his decree of peace. In his um, book, have you heard about the James Davison Hunter book, the Change the World book? It's, it's a worth checking out. He, um, he points out how throughout the history of the growth of Christianity, God uses interlocking networks of elite to serve the advance of the gospel. God uses those means providentially. He uses the Lady Huntingdons. He uses the networks of lords around Luther. There's a reason the Reformation under God took place in the 16th century rather than under Huss and Wycliffe. God used the Elizabethan settlement. God uses, whether we want to admit it or not and whether it fits with our Australian theology or not, God uses the elite in significant ways to serve his purposes. But just because he does, doesn't mean, and just because we can see he does, doesn't mean we ought. Does that make sense? Just because we can see that's what happens, doesn't mean we should veer our strategy to be dominated by trying to make it happen. Does that make sense? You can see that something happens without being able to whip it. In revival seasons, people read the Bible a lot longer and pray a lot longer. Happily listen to longer sermons and so on. Just because that does happen doesn't mean we can somehow reverse engineer a revival by inflicting enormous um, Bible reading programs and prayer meetings on people. Do you know what I mean? It's just one of those things. So we must be careful. Rich people need to hear the gospel. They need to be humbled by the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. They need to use their wealth and status and privilege to serve the gospel. But the poor people need to hear the gospel and the middle class people need to hear the gospel. We mustn't be diverted to only run after the rich. And yet we must call on the rich to use their wealth generously, humbly and joyfully to serve the poor, to reach the world. That's my longest point. And who knows what's happened to the program. The second point is shorter, but it's worth reflecting on. Preaching venues. Where should you hold church? Where did the Apostle Paul hold church? Where should you do your evangelism? You know, that kind of question. As his custom was, Luke draws our attention, 17 verse 2, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogues and reasoned from the scriptures. And so in 18 verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogues as his custom was. Or verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus and Paul left Priscilla and Aquila and went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul begins in the synagogues. Why? It's not because of a pragmatic principle to reach receptive people. It's just that's not why he does it. It's for a theological reason. You know this, right? Go and look at Acts 13. Paul lays out his theology of Jew first, then Gentile, in his sermon in Pisidian Antioch, another Antioch. Jew first. It's a theological priority. It's Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, right? It's theological, not receptive people groups. So the application of this custom, this message, this method of going to the synagogue is not where are our synagogues today, and I don't mean Caulfield, but rather your second Gentiles. That's the application. 
you're not the first, you're the second. The gospel has come even to you. Even preach the gospel to Gentiles. Marvel at the grace of God that the gospel goes even beyond the the synagogues and shuls and goes to others as well. It's the marvel. That's the first application. What's the method? Whoa, why not do Gentiles too? That's, (laughs) That's the method. But beyond that, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a command or a paradigm, but there is a, a, a common sense assumption built into the fact that the gospel does go even to Gentiles uh, and a common sense about how to bring the gospel to Jews and Gentiles that we see the apostles go to where people are thinking. Is Acts teaching that? Not so sure, but it is definitely showing... Well, I'll unpack this in a moment. They generally go to cities because there's lots of people there. And then when they go to cities, they go to synagogues where people talk about religion and they go to marketplaces. So in 16 verse 13, they go to a place where they expect to find people gathered to pray in 16 verse 13. Or 17 verse 17, Paul goes to the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be here. But wait, don't immediately go to the mall and do walk up evangelism because Paul went to the marketplace. That's the sloppy kind of Bible work that's not really getting the culture of that day. This is pre-radio, pre-television, pre-internet, pre-smartphone. This is, the marketplace is not just a place where there's kind of, you know, shops. In the Roman cities, this is the forum. In the Greek cities, this is the agora. This is the, the central hub of the city where, as we read in verse 18 of chapter 17, the Epicureans and the Stoics are spending all day talking about new ideas. This is a place where you go to hear the new announcements, the civil declarations, the new philosophies. This is kind of like one of the pagan synagogues, you see, not just a place where you go and buy a new pair of shoes. Now, is this the teaching of Acts? Is it a command? Is it a principle? Is it a paradigm? Well, let let me unpack it. You don't have to do walk-up evangelism or street preaching in order to be a biblical evangelist. We have no evidence that the apostles did that. So you don't have to do it because the apostles did it. As far as we know, they didn't. For that matter, you don't need to run an evangelistic course, a door-knocking campaign, hand out flyers, teach scripture in schools, or do almost any of the things in the modern way that we do them in order to be a bona fide, legitimate, authentic New Testament Christian. And no one can say, ah, that's why you're not growing, because the apostles did that and you don't do it. A bit more way of the master, and then you'd see some growth. <laughs> you don't have to do it. Isn't that a lovely application? There's no biblical demand that you have to do it. It's clear that God doesn't command it, if you like. But you don't not have to do it either. Now, that's the most resist- ridiculous sermon application I've ever heard. You don't not have to do open air preaching. And you don't not have to teach scripture in schools because you want to reach people. 1 Corinthians 9, by all possible means, in all possible ways to reach some, right? In Acts 20, as he surveys his missionary work, he preached publicly, he preached from house to house, called all people, the whole council of God, to call on them to repent. Now, we could argue what's the synagogue of today, what's the marketplace of today, is it the TV or the radio or the university or the philosophy cafe or the pub or the... Who cares? point is the gospel must go out the point is if you are getting the gospel out and going to where people are to reach them with the gospel you've got it 
And if you do it in places where people are already thinking and discussing and talking because you're not the confrontational door knocker, as far as we can see, that's what the apostles did. So you don't need to feel guilty that you don't really believe it, man. Because if you really believed it, you'd do something more kind of full-on that probably would be less evangelistically effective but make you feel better. And when he gets kicked out of the synagogue, he goes next door. 18, verses 7 to 8. He goes next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshipper of God. And he stays longer in the city because peace is granted by Jesus. He stays longer there as he changes venue. And it's the same thing in Ephesus. Ephesus uh, chapter 19, verse 9. Some of the Jews became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and stays longer there for two years there, proclaiming to everyone. What does this mean? This is Luke showing geographically how the gospel went to the Gentile. It quite literally, in terms of venue, went from Jew in the synagogue to Gentile in the home and the hall. It's him physically demonstrating that major theme in Acts. Is it an example of hospitality? Should we be like Titius Justice and show hospitality? It could be that he is the same person who is called Gaius in Acts 16, whose hospitality the whole church enjoys. Gaius Titius Justice. Not in the sense that we might mean. Not in the home is the primary location of church, uh, do life together sense. I don't think that's what we see in Titius Justice. In the first century, many synagogues met in homes. And in the first century, many of the larger homes could house comfortably 30, 40 or more people. And so we are dealing with a public-private venue a long way away from the suburban home of 21st century Sydney or Hobart. This is not a radical move in terms of location driven by a radical new theology of church. This is a radical move in the sense that it's the theology of shift from Jew to Gentile. But it's an ordinary location that shows us that the gospel just needs a venue where people can meet to hear the teaching because the message advances through the teaching and the church needs to gather. It can be a public home. It could be a private home. It can be a hall of Tyrannus. It could be... It doesn't need a special building, doesn't need a synagogue, doesn't need a temple, doesn't need a private cosy living room, doesn't need a purpose-built church complex. But we must meet as openly as possible to continue the message of preaching, to continue the gathering and preaching so the word will ring out, whether a living room, a school hall, a community centre, a tent in a park, or a massive auditorium. Keep meeting. Keep teaching. Keep open to any and all. If anything, it's a message of portability. The gospel must go out. Where it goes out is neither here nor there. And on the home stretch, the final thing we see in Acts 18 that I want to draw our attention to is leadership and teams. Leadership and teams in Acts 18. You see, from Antioch and then from Corinth and Ephesus, you see these patterns of establishing the churches, which involves strengthening the disciples, warning them about sufferings, and writing letters we could add too, couldn't we? Um, but we also see the establishment of elders. Paul, as Schnabel points out, was not just a missionary blitzer, but he was a master builder. 
He wasn't just about decisions. He was, he was about theological depth. They go together in his missionary practice. He wants to build them up in the gospel. New people submitted to Christ and Saviour and Lord, saved from the evil age and the wrath to come, called to live the new life together as disciples of Christ. Paul is committed to the long-term work. He's not just a running around the Mediterranean, off to Rome. He's looping around again and again and again, establishing the church as strong, putting leaders who can establish them further. He's doing a deep work. But more than just discipleship and maturity... He's about ministry. And throughout Acts, we see just this very thing. If I had time, I'd draw attention to how those themes are spelt out in Acts. From the proclamation that we're all prophets in chapter 2, from the spread of 12 disciples to the ministry to the seven, to a whole new centre in Antioch, who then appoint missionaries, who then appoint elders, and then new missionary partners recruited after Paul and Barnabas fight. And and then the seven emissaries in chapter 20 who match the seven... Everyone wants to say they're not deacons, but I don't see why they're not deacons in chapter 6. And then the elders in Ephesus in chapter 20. That you have this... this, What's it saying? I don't think it's teaching church polity in the first place. The underlying theological thing it's teaching in the first place is when the word spreads, the ministry of the word spreads. That's the big point. All God's people are now prophets. The word is spreading and part and parcel of the word spreading is churches are gathered and the ministry spreads from 12 to the many elders and evangelists and deacons and elders. The word creates churches and the word creates leaders. It's the theology that drives us because Christ is risen and all his people now have the spirit, it drives us out to church plant by just sheer theology. We must plant new churches because the word does it. The word gathers and the word appoints leaders. Faithful ministry is a concern to share the work with new leaders. And so they, some of our church planters, they, they build into their budget from the beginning an MTS apprentice because they, from the very beginning, want to build in the vision to share the ministry with new leaders. That in the end of discipleship is leadership. The vision to pass on the ministry as you disciple. Maturity, this is the course of your life stuff, maturity leads to ministry. I'm talking your language, EV, guys. A healthy ministry recruits from within. And a healthy ministry, you'll begin to see that. Elders come from within, even uh, staff coming in from within as the ministry grows. A faithful ministry, to talk in practical terms, learns to lead well and delegate well. Has to learn to do those things. If our theology tells us the ministry of the word leads to the spread of the ministry of the word, we must, by conviction, learn to become good at delegation. You see the shared ministry with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila in 18 verse 2 to 4 as they share a ministry together. And then later they go off, perhaps because there's tent making to do in Ephesus as well. And so that in 18 and 19, Paul stays in Corinth and then leaves with, um, with Priscilla and Aquila to go to Ephesus. And now they're ministering in Ephesus together. We see the team of Ty- Ty- Timothy and Silas in verse 5 who again have been doing work and establishing work back up in Macedonia. Who are, who are consolidating there, as we read in the Thessalonian letters. 
And the process is unpacked deliberately for us in what some call the Acts of Apollos at the end of chapter 18. It's a great little account. Again, very rhetorically charged, very deliberately positive. Notice how positively and and editorially active Luke is here. 1824, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man. Here's Alexandria, the other big city, by the way. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, He came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scripture. Good, good, good. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great fervor. Good, good, good. He sounds like a Stephen, doesn't he? He sounds like a Philip. Um, And yet his knowledge was inadequate. It's hard to figure out what he did know, isn't it? He knew only the baptism of John, yet he knew the way of the Lord. Either way, he began to speak boldly. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they wrote a letter and said he should stop. (laughs) No. A very strongly worded letter, mind you. And CC a bunch of people. The mischief of the email, right? No. They went, yes! (laughs) Yes! And so they grabbed him, and they pulled him into their home, doing life together, and they ministry in the home. They trained him. They taught him as a couple in their home. Their home was a place of ministry where they taught, and they instructed, and they uh, sent him out. And the whole church happily, oh no, I remember his first sermons, he, didn't, he only knew the baptism of John, we shouldn't send him out. No, they, they happily send him out, don't they? Verse 27, Apollos wanted to go to Archaea, to Corinth, and they encouraged him to go. And they wrote a letter saying, this guy's a good guy, as we say here. And, and so we sent him out. And he was active in the ministry. I planted, Paul says, and Apollos watered. Released for ministry. Are you doing that work, church planter? Are you doing that work, senior minister? Are you setting aside time for that work too, hands, of devoting to the word and sharing the ministry of the word? So many things compete with our time, but sharing the ministry of the word, another Archie Poulos classic line, anything that's worth doing is worth doing with someone else. Alert to it like Priscilla and Aquila are, not shutting it down, but investing more. I think that's one of the things in addition to preaching that David Jones did for me and my peers back in the 90s. He preached and then he let us minister and instructed us and gave us things to read and, and protected us from the criticism. The ministry of letting go and trusting the, the spread of the word and the spread of the ministry of the word. It's ultimately a character issue, isn't it? Am I a controller? Or am I someone who is dependent upon the Lord leading the harvest? It's a change of character issue. Am I sloppy and she'll be right and I'll kind of baptise it in an Aussie theology of we just muddle along? Or is it a theology that says if I'm going to effectively share with the, the seven and then the more fellow workers and then the whole bunch of churches I've made a mess of for myself, then I need to learn how to administer that. You've got to learn to delegate. Some of us get angry, right? You know, you, some of us say, I asked them to do it and I hate it when they didn't do it. We get angry, right? But here's a little proverb for you. You only have a right to be a self-indignant uh, church planter because someone let you down. You only have a right to be angry if you have thoroughly delegated in detail and followed up. Oh, I don't have time for that. It's okay. You don't have time to be angry then either. You only have the right to be indignant if not just I asked them to, but I gave a clear plan and I followed it up. There's a little proverb for you. Look at the ant and be wise. 
But beyond the broader command, the spread of the ministry, I think we do see in Acts, Acts 20, and in 1 Timothy, and in Titus, the command to appoint elders. The church is led through properly appointed elders. Now, what kind of constitutional power they have and how many of them there are and what their relationship is to the paid staff cause all sorts of denominational dramas and it's good that we have other denominations so we can live in peace while pursuing uh, varied expressions of how those elders look. But we must have the structure in some sense. From my experience, the Presbyterian system can be done very badly. From my experience, the Presbyterian system can be done extraordinarily well. If you choose the right people and you manage the systems well and you're courageous enough to face the elder who is in sin rather than bearing under their intimidation, if you patiently work on relationships and share vision around the word, the transition to teamwork can be either the thing that makes or breaks a ministry, the disaster of a mess of fighting and confusion, or a shared work, a multiplication of ministry and accountability for the staff as they share the ministry with the team, a safeguard for the work. The Lord Jesus leads his church through his appointed leaders who he entrusts with his flock that he bought with his own blood. Brothers and sisters, let's close with Acts 20 and Paul's commission to the elders then as he commissions us, whether as formal elders and staff or as those who share in that ministry in a uh, assisting capacity, whether those who aspire to be elders and that noble work. Verse 32, I commit you to the word of God and to his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Our loving Father, You have saved us, you have loved us, and now your work is going out into the world. Save many, we pray. Use us, we pray. May we be led by your spirit in godliness and a sharing in your work in the world. May we not grieve your spirit and put out the spirit's fire. And we pray for ourselves, for the leaders over us, and for the leaders and upcoming leaders under us. We pray that all of us may come to know the way of the Lord more fully, teach it boldly, and so the message will spread. We give you thanks for the ministry of EV Church or of Uni Church in Wagga or of the Christian Reformed Church in Kingston or of a Holy Trinity Anglican Church on North Terrace. We give you thanks for the many churches that have become like Antioch churches. And we pray that many more of them will grow up. We pray for this city, Melbourne, Pray for Brisbane, for Perth, for other regional centres, for Mackay. We pray that your gospel rings out so that many are saved in Australia and many missionaries go out to the world. Amen.